Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. I got your your email today sometime this morning. Mm-hmm. And it said you're driving in. I live in Kitchener. Oh, shit. Yeah. But you, Oh, wow. Okay, so you live in Kitchener. Mm-hmm. But you work in Toronto? Mm-hmm. Or do you physically come to Toronto every day? or? Uh, most days. Okay. Yeah. I almost felt like that. Like, holy shit, you came all the way from Kitchener. Happy to do it. That That's awesome. I do it for way less important things than this. <laughs> <laughs> Some days it's like, I don't even know why I'm driving. I'm why? five minutes into the drive. <laughs> <laughs> that's me on roller coasters. Mm-hmm. It used to be, we're going up there like, why am I doing this again? <laughs> I hated it the first time. Um, so what, what's, what's in Kitchener for you? Is that just families there? It's a long, there? it's a long story, man. All right, you want to hear the? We we got time. We got time. Yeah. Well, I moved to Toronto from Los Angeles. I needed a, a small little break. I on a nice little you know, small town. Okay. It was safe. Toronto nice. was small and safe. Yeah. And uh, I figured I'd come here and check okay. stuff out. And yeah. And I did, and I met a young lady, and we had a couple of, we had one child, and then we had another child yeah. later. But when we had one child and. Toronto, we were situated in two different places. Ah. And um, I had a buddy of mine from uh, from Blue Rodeo, actually. Okay. A, a pedal steel player from Blue Rodeo. Yeah. I was working on recording a record with him. Okay. And he said Conestoga College and City of Kitchener offered uh, an opportunity for me to come build uh, a music production department or program. Yeah. You know? So Bob invited me out, and uh, we found a house real quick, and yeah. I, I looked at my partner at the time and said could be interesting to move in together right and try sure. the whole family thing yeah we and got one <laughs> you got one and so uh and that's what started kitchener okay oh. that is amazing um nice you've you've I, your linkedin profile someone could get lost in there They're like there's, it's so heavy you've done so much stuff um and i've no and so i I usually start at the beginning somewhere, but I have no clue where the beginning is. All I know is you've always been into music, and mm-hmm. you've you you've been a, a a artist, a musician, since before you went into college slash university. Yeah. Um, how you come from a family of musicians? I don't. Okay. My grandfather played sax in the '30s. Yeah. In a dance band, it was before swing hit. Yeah. And he used to tour across Canada, the West Coast of America. In, in in these dance bands, okay. So he had a lot of stories, and I heard some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, coming up. But outside and you're in of the that, states, that's where you grew up. That's you're born and bred. I was born here. Oh, you born here? Yes. Okay. Um, but my father, being a great entrepreneur, he decided to become a new immigrant and okay, and moved to America. Okay, okay. okay. Raised his family there. All right, so you're there, and then your 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 family's into music and stuff like that. Not really. Okay. My father hates music. I put music on the radio. He's like, turn, turn that, turn shit that off. off. <laughs> put it on NPR or, or something, or right? whatever. Or, I don't know. NPR or cons- I don't know which way your dad pulled it, but does that? I think my dad's last interest in music was like Three Dog Night, just like way back. Okay, it's like it's not so bad. It's you know it's pre Doors, right? And the guy, I'm sure he liked the Doors from Apocalypse <laughs> Now, right? Every yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. Every guy from that generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. Um, so how did you get into it? What's the? Do I give you the long story? Do I give you the juicy story? Um, make it juicy and make long. it juicy, right? You know, I, you know, I got into music because 
that was I didn't I don't even look at it as a choice. Oh, I, I okay. had I had um, let's just say I had a, a complicated youth. Fair enough. Right, and um, and with that complicated youth came yeah. came consequences, and with yeah. those consequences came reality checks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and so with a few of those reality checks, I, I had you know a, a very big epiphany at a young age and at that epiphany was if i'm going to actually continue to live yes i better do something that Stay i enjoy trouble. doing and music was was it eh drums just kind of popped up so okay. I, my first drum set was i stole a bunch of trash cans off the golf course <laughs> duct taped them of all together <laughs> just started you know getting after it yeah rather than sports a lot of you always you hear similar stories and they go I, I better go to this boxing gym down the neighborhood over there Yours was music. I'm probably going to lead a lot of things to my kids, so excuse me if I do that. That's fine. That's fine, yeah. Part of the one of the reasons I stay in Canada okay. is because of this one thing. Okay. Right? You're right. A lot of people do drift to sports. Canada yeah. doesn't seem to punish children when they're having a hard time in their youth. Huh. America, well, at least Texas. I don't know about okay. the rest. I can't speak for the rest yeah, of Yeah, no, no, America. no. This is interesting. But in Texas... If you don't pass, you don't play. You don't no pass, no play. It's been like that since sure since junior high. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if you don't pass, yeah, and you have troublesome record. Yeah. And this was from seventh, ah. success, seventh grade on. Yeah. You, you you don't even get a chance. Yeah. So it's it's like a double edged sword. It's like it's it's America's way of just kind of filtering you down a path. Yeah. Right. And if you start going down this path, it gets harder and harder to jump over to that other path. Uh, when in Canada, yeah. the socialist system, yeah. it's kind of easy to flip flop. Yeah. I've seen good people end up, you know, in front of judges saying, I'm sorry. And I've seen, you know, people who are typically considered bad. Yeah. Given a great shot to end up on that other side of the pier. Uh huh. Um, and I like that about this country. Okay. I think my daughters deserve that. Yeah. Because. You know, if I had a troubled youth, my father had a troubled youth, they're probably going to... Sorry, they got, are, they you got know. their dad's genes. <laughs> right? You want them to live a long, productive life? Let's stay up here. Yeah. Yeah. Is it that... Is it, is it that bad in the States? I don't know if that's the right term to use, but is it that cut and dry? It was for me. Yeah? I can't speak for everybody. Sure. But granted, you know, it's Texas. It's Southeast Texas. And they're mm. probably a good... 20, 30 years behind Canada when it comes to public education. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you, you got everything in Texas is about money. Huh. If you got money, you're going to do just fine. You're going to have good health care. You're going to have good schooling. You're going to have a lot to, uh, a lot of choices in life. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, it, it's, it gets the, you know, the noose gets tighter and tighter. Yeah. You gravitated towards jazz, right? Or was that after a few turn twists and turns? Well, I started beating on trash cans, and my mom was like, "Okay, you know, let's let's get too loud. Let's get (laughs) let's get something that's loud, at least somewhat pleasant, right?" Okay, all right. So immediately, I just got with some bands and played, and we started playing shows, and then touring around Texas, and and off we went, right? And ever since then, I mean, we got kind of lucky because at the time, hip hop wasn't really fused with live music. Okay. And I think the first band to do that at the time was The Roots. I mean, we're talking back yeah. early 90s. And this was 90, 91, 92. Okay. And we started playing with, 
like mixing culture and races in the South at that time. Okay. Was not, it wasn't like uncommon, but yeah. it wasn't like, hey, it wasn't not like. Not everyone wasn't doing it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was more of a conscious decision than uh-huh. it was just a natural evolution. Like I walk around the streets in Toronto and it's like, no, nobody really thinks of it. It's just part sure. of the deal, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Texas, it was like, well, let's try to mesh this and see what, come, what happens, right? Uh-huh. So we got the eyes of some local um, big bands. Yeah. In Houston at that time, Houston had a big scene. It was actually bigger than Austin at the time. Okay. And um, late 80s, early 90s. Was there a certain type of music coming out of It was like anything that was radically diversified in punk music. Ah. So you had punk funk, and you had ska punk, and you had all these different kind of things happening. Yeah. And um, so there was a lot of good bands. And then at the same time, you had metal rising to a new level with bands like Dead Horse and Pantera. Yeah. And so there was a lot of cool stuff happening there. Huh. So a lot of these bands heard us and they were like, what is this? So yeah, come yeah. out and play with us. And, you know, we would go to different cities in Texas and open up for these bands. And yeah, yeah. It was it was fun. And that's what gave me my first kind of bug for it. Interesting. Um, and this is pre... Did you go to college, university? My first experience in higher education yeah. was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay. Uh, because of that troubled youth. Troubled youth. Right? Oh, okay. Um, I, I couldn't get anywhere. I, I graduated high school with like a D minus. Sure. Like a, I think it was a point five. They kicked you out. Basically, Basically, they let you finish. Yeah. Get the minimum amount of credits. Okay, you're done now. You're done now. So yeah. They were like, you know what? You've worked hard enough. You don't have to go get a GED. <laughs> you can have your, uh, you know, your diploma. Yeah. I think out of 510 people, I was 508. There you go. Right. People behind you. People behind me. <laughs> right. And the other two guys behind me, I think, were in juvie. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, was excited about having me. Okay. <laughs> because I was artistic, I guess. Okay. Okay. I, was, you know, I could yeah, yeah, play yeah. a little bit and sure. I could paint a little bit. So okay. They, so they had me. They said, you know what? You, if you can sign the check, you can come. Okay. So I showed up. Yeah. Um, we gave him some money and yeah. they put me on probation and off I went in my higher education. Okay. A few years later, that was a profound experience in Santa Fe. I, yeah. I learned about education finally after all those years of hard work of in the system. Yeah. Um, I decided to take drumming seriously and moved to New Orleans. Okay. I moved to New Orleans to do a degree or finish my degree at Loyola. Okay. Great thing about colleges in What America, was your degree in? Sorry. Jazz. Jazz, jazz okay. Studies. Okay. Um, the great thing about and it might be the same up here, I'm not sure. But once you do a few years in college, mm-hmm. high school goes away. It's those few years in college that matter. Sure, sure. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I applied to do my uh, degree at Loyola, which is a pretty decent school in the South. Yeah. Um, they just looked at the college, and I did great in college in awesome. Santa Fe. So yeah. it was like... Perfect. It was like I never had high school. Yeah. So it was great. What was it that clicked? Was it because you were studying something you were passionate about? that there was no time in your mind or even time in the day to do any extracurricular activities you were focused like what was it i think it was the teachers man yeah i think so wow they were cool yeah what do you want to do mr gray i want to do this well fuck yeah you know like let's get after it you yeah. know they would invite me over to the house we would play or yeah. paint or go on hikes I met this one teacher, David Dunn. He made me go out into caves in the middle of nowhere in northern Mexico and record shit. 
Like it was just so inspiring. I know it was so inspiring. Yeah. These classes and the music program at the College of Santa Fe at the time was new, so yeah. you could kind of design your own thing. It was almost like doing a PhD because you could make up your own thing and then research it and then go do it and come back and present. That's amazing. Right? So yeah. that was my first experience Wow. with higher education. Yeah. I thought, shit, this is great. Yeah. You're actually, <laughs> I want to do this all the time. Sounds like you were like applying stuff rather than you talk, let me listen, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And how I teach today is the same way. Yeah. I teach at Sheridan. Wow. Um, sorry, you're in New Orleans. You finish your degree in jazz. Mm-hmm. You, you get your diploma, you get your degree. What's your next step? Where do you where do you go from there? Well, I was in New I was I was in New Orleans for about three years. Yeah. Late nineties. I left a few days after Y two K, for L A. The whole time I was there, I didn't listen, and I didn't play anything else outside of rhythmic jazz. Okay. When I say rhythmic jazz, I mean like traditional New Orleans rhythms, and music. Okay. Um. Every day I would practice, I would go to a gig, I'd play. Okay. Or I would go out on a week tour. I'd do some festivals and come back. Yeah. Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. The school I went to was hard on theory and all that. Mm. But as long as you could demonstrate you were performing in the real world, they kind of let you sure. slide a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. So my teacher in New Orleans, I had three of them. Johnny Vidakovich and people who are drummers would know this. Uh, Johnny Vidakovich, Stanton Moore, and Jason Marcellus. And at the time... I, Jason I, Marcellus, why does that name ring a bell? He's the youngest of the Marcellus clan. Okay. So, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Winton, Brantford. Yeah. On down. Um, and these drummers were mind-boggling good. Like, you yeah. just... I would, I would watch them or take a lesson or hang out and have some food. And, yeah, yeah. And I just didn't... I couldn't get my head around how I could ever be that sure. good, right? Wow, so I was okay. just like, please rub off on me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and it was just... You know, I just absorbed. And wow. a lot and a lot of these lessons were um, like hangout sessions. Like Stanton lived um, across the river you know, yeah. on Algiers Point. So I'd take a ferry over. He'd cook some food and have some tea or coffee or whatever. And we would hang out for three, four hours. And Jason was the same way. Yeah. I mean, to do a lesson with Johnny Vidakovich, I'd take a bus an hour and a half in each direction just to get to his place. Hmm. So I would practice on the bus and talk. It was it was just really, it was an intense part of my life that was, it could never be replaced. It yeah. prepped me for the rest of my life. That kind of devotion to your oh, instrument. yeah. Yeah. And my gigs that I took, John would call and say, look, I got this $40 gig at checkpoint charlie's or yeah. something and you know these guys can barely hold together and they're already drunk so yeah why don't you go fill in for me and and uh you know experiment yeah <laughs> right you know what i mean yeah like work on this groove or work sure, on this sure. view yeah that's fascinating when do you get from playing music to uh on the business side because you did some work with was it def jam you did some work with uh, or, you're thinking of Rick Rubin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's American Records way after Def Jam. Okay, way after, yeah. So how do you get into working like in, in that sort of space? <sighs> I don't share this often. Okay. This is a good question. <laughs> um, I usually share this with my students because they ask these kind of questions. Yeah. These are good questions. Um, after New Orleans, I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. I had a long talk with Stanton and John about 
do I stay? Do I go? What do I do? And I remember John Stanton said I should stay. And okay. John said, you can always come back, man. New Orleans is like a bucket full of crabs. They're just going to suck you back in anyway. Ah. So I said to myself, fuck it, I'm just going to go. Okay. So I went to L.A. and I heard about this school called Cal Arts. Okay. And uh, it turned out to be one of the best art schools in the country. I didn't even really care about it. I just wrote this really quick application, one line. You know, they ask all these heavy questions. So you wanted to go and further your education? I didn't at the time. I just okay. wanted to go, and then I got there, and I heard about the school, ah. and I went there, and I saw it. It was like, this is pretty cool. Interesting. So, I, you know, I did this quick application. I got accepted. And um, now I'm there, and I'm working in the industry, and I'm touring, and I'm going back in school. Yeah, and uh, this was even more intense than the stuff I learned in New Orleans and in Santa Fe. I mean, my first day of classes, there was naked people in class uh, because it was an art school. And okay, they, they encouraged the students to come as you are, however you are, share whatever you want. Yeah, so that really kind of opened up the door even more to my whole creative process and thinking. Because now I'm getting I'm getting my chops like yeah. a plumber would out there, just shaking sure. out things. I learned well in New Orleans how to make a living. I could do five, six gigs a day if I could. Yeah. And then I'm kind of feeding my head information through these art schools and these different kind of liberal educations. If you yeah. Will. So I end up in Rick Rubin's camp because all of a sudden in, in, in Los Angeles, uh, my two worlds collide. Okay. So I got academic. Yeah. And I have this kind of weird history with um, a troubled youth, if you will. Okay, okay. Right? So... In the industry of Los Angeles, in order to work in certain camps, yeah, you got to be able to keep your mouth shut. Okay, and you got to be able to do things that might not necessarily be uh, what's the right word? Kosher. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and because I had that kind of experience in my past, yeah, we'll call it street smart. Sure, sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, just because you go to Harvard and you get an Ivy League education, it's not going to put you beside one of the best producers on the planet because you're smart and you went to Harvard. Right. Uh -huh. They need to see a certain amount of street smarts in you to be able to hand certain things. Yeah. In the in the search for certain things. Right. So. I, I had a I had a friend who was at a, a management agency. Okay. He started giving me work. Okay. And, um, what sort of work is he giving you now? It's it's non kosher work. Non kosher. Okay. Work, right. All right. Uh, you know, I'll tell you one in the music space, in the music in, industry, in the music industry. Okay, okay. And I'll you know I'll tell you one of them, right? Okay. So one of them was it was a very famous band. I'm not. I can't. I can't say any names. It, it was starts with. Bad. Okay, I'll I'll give you it's two word band. Okay, and the first words B and the last words B. I'll, I'll leave it. Okay, back. and they had just love started, those guys. It, fuck. It, <laughs> and they just started a record label and signed a new artist. Yeah, this new artist was not doing well in America. All right, when they released, it. okay, and they put a lot of money into yeah. it. Yeah, so management comes to me because we need somebody who could fly into Utah. Yeah, or to Nevada. Yeah, or to Arizona. And buy up every single fucking CD in the state. Here's a fistful of cash. Go do it. I hear. Right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I go do that. And yeah. the radios get wind of this. And yeah. like, Jesus, this is selling. We got to start spinning it. And then they start spinning it. With more orders for CDs come. Okay. Right? Yeah. And then the train goes on and on. You move state to state. You move state to state. Right? Yeah. So 
gigs like that. Interesting. Right? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Really, yeah. really off the record marketing gigs. Yeah. Stuff. Is your basement filled with CDs? I know. I had, <laughs> well, here's the, here's, here's the really funny thing, right? I took those CDs I bought from another place yeah. and sold them in another state. Look at you! <laughs> so, there you go. That is neat. And so, you do enough of that, and Rick Rubin's people hear about well, everybody you. Everybody in asset. L.A. Yeah. It's a small town. Once you get into these certain... Oh, uh, okay. Wait. You know what I mean? Everybody kind of knows everybody. yeah. And there's, you know, there's maybe 10 camps. Okay. Like like legitimate camps at a time of popularity okay. each decade, right? Yeah. Each decade has a sound. Each decade has, you know, certain producers attached to it. That's it. Yeah. Right? So if you get into those camps for that period of time, yeah. you're one of the elite huh. in those particular scenarios. Yeah. Right? So once you're in there and you're, you're deemed worthy, you're, you, you can be passed on, if you will, without a resume or any of that other stuff that you just a quick this guy's good you need him give him a call right yeah so this was all in between touring okay and, and playing meanwhile i'm going on these auditions i've learned how to audition in la which is almost a daily thing yeah um and there it's like like bands that are looking for new drummers yeah, and, yeah? some okay. are like serious serious bands and some are starting bands a lot of them are label bands with funding a lot yeah. of them you know it's just you get it, you get into the routine of it. Okay. But this was back then. I don't know how it is now. Yeah. It's been about a decade. Yeah. Um, so during this process, I end up in the camp of Rick Rubin, uh, helping out in his house. Yeah. And I think the main assistant is still with Rick today. Yeah. Um, you know, I start off like organizing CDs. Sure. Setting up, you know, I'd organize CDs and then walk downstairs and set up a mic for Chris Martin a Coldplay. Yeah. And uh, then organize Johnny Cash's Two Inches. And then walk Rick's dog, and then yeah. go down to the local store to Real Food Daily and get the vegan food of choice yeah. for Rick in the camp. Okay. And then walk over to the local newspaper place yeah. with, with magazines and scan through the magazines that there's anything about Rick, oh. so you can keep everybody up to date. What's going on? You know, there's like these this is pre-internet. Pre-internet, <laughs> right? This is when was this? No, it was it was internet. Probably it, it, it was just, just yeah. It was it was pre iPhone. Okay. The difference. Yeah. Right? Oh yes, was, yes, yes. Blackberries back then. Yeah, yeah. Was kind of it. This would have been three four years before iPhone. Okay. Wow. What did you learn? I I don't know. I read it somewhere. I think that you learned a lot. I did. From working with him. I don't. You know, I can't even say that I worked with him. Sure. I worked for him. Okay. And I wasn't even, I, I'd be surprised if the guy remembered me today. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was very. You got him vegan food. You know, <laughs> it was very insignificant. Fair. Yeah. You know? Fair. So, but watching the great people work. Okay. And ah. just their daily habits. Okay. I think teaches you more than you could ever possibly imagine. Yeah. What sort of things did you learn and from whom? Like Chris Martin. What did you learn from Chris Martin? You know, Chris is now the guy I hold up here, the highest possible really possible scenario okay. for pure talent. Okay. Sings off key, doesn't have a great range. Uh-huh. Um, but man, he's got great groove and yeah. his energy is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And when he sat down at the piano upstairs and just started to kind of thumble through and yeah. and um it was just oh, there's real talent. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, sure, sure, it was sure. It's just like the purity of talent. And at that time in my life, I'm deciding, 
you know, do I have talent? Do I have drive? Mm. Do I have both? And I've yeah, got, I've got people categorized in three different ways now. Okay, and I got that division at that time in my life after mm-hmm. seeing a few people play. Yeah, did you have a chance to work? And I think this is also in your LinkedIn with Audio Slave and Chris Cornell. Uh, a lot of what I did for Rick at that time had to do with Chris Cornell. Okay. Yeah. All right. What like what did you learn from him? From Chris? Yeah. First thing that comes to mouth is what not to do, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Okay. You know what I mean? He's a wonderful human being. Yeah. He's just kind and, and cool, but he was just in a really rough point in his life. Uh huh. And how he was choosing to go in the trenches, well, I think, is what helped me decide, you know, that you didn't want to go in that I didn't direction. Want to go into that direction. Hmm. When when he passed, and I, I mean. You don't know what you got till it's gone, is, is a saying. Mm-hmm. And I think with him, um, a, a lot of people are saying one of the best voices ever um, in music, in rock. Um, your thoughts? I wouldn't say one of the best voices ever. Yeah. I would say one of the best energies ever. Energies, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I wouldn't put Chris on a... I'm sure a lot of people would love to just hit me right now. But, <laughs> you know, when you talk about great voices, I think about Celine Dion. I don't like sure. Celine Dion, yeah, yeah. but that's a that's a great example mm. of like a voice, a yeah. range, the yeah. whole deal. And not that Chris doesn't have range and yeah. he can't hit all those notes and all that. Yeah. But like I think about Chris and I, I would put him top five best energies. Mm. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to see them early on, late eighties, early nineties, even before Lollapalooza. Yeah. And then Pelosa and then beyond. And I've watched him even on a solo tour just a couple years ago. My yeah. sister is obsessed with him. Wow. Um, so I've, I've watched him throughout his career. Yeah. And um, saw him up close, saw his family up close. Yeah. Saw what he wore, how he shopped for clothes. You know, mm. I, I saw a lot of that. And, and his energy was just profound. It, that, I think his energy, like Chris Martin, yeah. affected me. And that's when I started to see greatness yeah close yeah it was about energy it was really about you know being a good person yeah did it scare you off is that why you didn't pursue that fully or was it excuse me was it the some of the dark stuff that you saw they said i don't want to even get near that i need to move in the other direction You, you know what it is There's people that live two different kind of ways. Okay. There's people who try to control too much. Uh-huh. And then there's people who let go. Okay. So for lack of a better way of saying it, you have people who have faith-based living and then people who don't. Faith-based would be letting go. Be letting go. Okay. Whatever happens, happens. Okay. And what I've learned over the years... And I've seen this in different producers working for major producers. Yeah. Is that you have producers that totally let go in the room. And yeah. And people be who they are with a little bit of pinching and pulling. Yeah. And then you have the ones that try to control every second, every sound, everything. And they try to do all that. Yeah. And I just learned at that period in my life, whether it was with Chris or Michael Beinhorn, for example, is, a, is another producer, um, that control doesn't necessarily work for me in the way that I work. Hmm. And working in, in an environment with other individuals that live in a faith-based deal. You let yeah. it totally go. 
yeah. drop sticks or whatever it is, that's the moment that's important. And when uh, you press the record button yeah. and you let it rip and you are who you are, it's literally like taking a photo of who you are right now. Yeah. And that's what matters. Uh, Don't try to clean it up. Yeah. Don't try to make it perfect. And I really learned that from Rick. You don't even get into the studio before you're ready. And when you, when I mean ready, we're talking years of preparation. Yeah. And there might even be albums recorded before for prep. Yeah. Before the real thing gets done. Yeah. I remember him saying, I forget what record it was, but they were reviewing it. It was Pro Tools chopped up all the oh, perfectly. Okay. And yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. got the systems down. And Rick looked at the band and said, oh, great. Well, you guys know the tunes now. Let's go in and record them. <laughs> <laughs> right you know it's, it's all about that energy. was it all live like did he have like just play it or or was were they okay drums first and then the guitar and no it was all together yeah it was all done okay it was you know years of work of engineering this yeah and uh and rick was like okay great it's done let's go record it now and everybody wow. was like oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but that's his thing it's live energy off the floor in the moment yeah and you know those tunes yeah. back and forth or at least you know them to the point where your improvisations yeah. are in tune with what's going on in the tune. Huh. How do you get into, so you go from, you're, you're playing jazz in New Orleans, you go to LA, you end up going into going to school there in the arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you then get into music production side of things. Um, where, where does, where do you, where does teaching now? Where does that, when, how does that happen? Uh, you know, I've, I've been teaching ever since the beginning. Okay. Ever since I started playing live, people would come up to me and go, man, I really dig what you're, what you're doing. You know, you help me out sometime or show me a few things. Yeah. And it started way early. Okay. Before I even knew what the hell I was doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm just a big fan of passing it on. Okay. I'm a big fan of helping people out. Yeah. A lot of people were there for me in the beginning. I feel sure. Like, I feel like it's That's my, right. Yeah. You sat down with those guys. Now you said, let me. Yeah pass on some of that time and knowledge yeah. but then it gets to a point where you're doing this in a um uh you're doing it in a school environment well how, where was that sort of just a natural progression in terms of i enjoy giving back here's you know this school is looking for someone i i think this is what i really like to do like how did that happen I can honestly say that most of the choices in my life and yeah. career, yeah. which is probably why it's so thick and so long, yeah. it's just when it comes, it comes. I don't even really look for it. I was Letting just, go. I was just had a I had a job interview the other day. Yeah. And I put job, and maybe this is the job. Job interview? Yeah. I, I have, I Aren't think, you busy? <laughs> it's funny because I have, uh, I have this audition mentality in me. To stay fresh in the real world, yeah. you got to go on auditions. Okay. You got to feel what's going on out there. Yeah. Like before here, yeah. two blocks over is a rehearsal place. Okay. I don't know if you know that. What's the name of the place? Uh, it's called something else okay. now, <laughs> yeah. but it was called something else before, okay. like eight years ago. Yeah. Right? And I used to rehearse there when I go on auditions, yeah. right? Went in there, to- toilets were nice. The place is nice now. Oh. I'm like, wow, this is great, <laughs> right? But by doing that, it keeps me fresh. So I do the same thing in my business sense where I yeah. keep going on, on job interviews and I just put stuff out there. Um, and I was going somewhere with this. Take me back. Take we, me back. We, we were talking about getting into teaching formally, into school, and then you, you, you went in in terms of... But you asked me something about the professional world. The flow. There was about a flow. This whole this conversation is the flow. So <laughs> there was there was no st- specific structure, but oh, you asked me yeah. how how I ended up there. Yeah, 
And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I take opportunities to, okay. keep, to keep me fresh. Yeah. Oh, that's what that's what I wanted to okay. say. Is when I really need a job, yeah. I don't look for a job. Okay. What do you do? Let it come to me. I go out and talk to people. Interesting. Okay. Um, I got excited when I saw that you 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 do you still work with or for Daniel Lanois? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How did that? <laughs> See, now I know. How did that happen? It just kind of happened. It did. But <laughs> tell me. All right. So post Rick Rubin. Okay. Rick Rubin had such an effect on me. Yeah. Everything from the furniture to how he sets up his studio to the foodie buy. I mean, just the whole thing. And yeah. That, that's where Everything's really... like a learning experience for you. Eh? Totally, Everything's man. education. I take everything in like that. I, I could tell you about shows that meant nothing, but I learned something profound on it anyway. Huh. Yeah. I, I admire toilets and bathrooms. So that's, okay. that's why I mentioned the one in there. Because it tells me a lot about the place. Okay. Right? Anyways. So, I went through another stretch of hard times. Yeah. Uh, I met a young lady. Uh, we got engaged. Yeah. Turns out she had a very severe case of lupus. Okay. And needed some some medical attention. So yeah. we moved to Oregon for a year. Whoa. And uh, proceeded to try to get her help. Yeah. Uh, in that process, I'm realizing healthcare ain't working for us around here. So yeah. I'm Canadian. What do you know? Huh. Right? So I'm thinking, well, maybe we get married. We move back to Canada. We got health care for yeah. you. Oh, on top of that, I could apply to a school for the PhD because now I have a master's from, from CalArts. Yeah. Uh, maybe that could add in on some of the health care issues. Yeah. Right? So I applied to all the schools in Canada for the PhD program of whatever was there and, um, and kind of just forgot about it. Yeah. It turns out that... That's mine. That's okay. normal. Okay. Um, it turns out that uh, we didn't work out. Okay. Um, I went on a tour and blah, blah, blah. It just didn't work out. And she she said, I don't need you to be a nurse for the rest of your life. Yeah. So go about your way. We'll stay in touch, whatever the case is. So I moved back to L.A. Yeah. And joined this band called Saint Motel. Saint Motel. Yeah. And I'm with them for about nine or ten months. And in this nine or ten months, I'm homeless. It's 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 hard times. And wow. uh, I'm living out of rental cars and storage units and friends' couches and offshoot tours with uh, dinky bands and blues bands and then going on tour with St. Motel. I love that band, St. Motel. And I was going through a hard time, and I was treating people like shit in my life, and, and I, I just didn't have it together. So right around the time they decided to, uh, to give me the boot out of the band, oh. I got a call from York. York, okay. University. York University. And they said... Uh, hey man, you want to come up and do your PhD and you can come teach and uh, you know we love what okay, what you're sure. doing yeah, and, yeah. and come on up. So I was like homeless, <laughs> no no more band at this point. It's like a week after all this happened. Right? Yeah, I got nowhere to stay. Yeah, I'm unhappy. Yeah, uh, I need a break. Yeah, I need some small town back in my life. <laughs> and here's this job. Yeah, cool. Yeah, off I go to Canada. All right. Uh, so I come to Canada and proceed down this road of PhD. I put the drums aside for a little while. I'm going to take a break. Yeah. And I wanted to write the dissertation on Rick Rubin and his sound. Okay. Right? Yeah. So I spend a year researching it and calling people like uh, Tom Petty and Anthony Kiedis, other people that have worked with Rick. And I realized in the process of writing an ethnomusicologist dissertation mm -hmm. with all the ethno 
graphic research I have going to have to do. I'm basically a cultural anthropologist doing this degree on a music sense of it. So I'm yeah. looking at the culture of something yeah. uh, versus the actual music of it. So, for example, an ethnomusicologist degree, if you will, or a perspective is like you would go to Paul McCartney yeah. and you would say, hey, man, love, hey, Jude. Yeah. Instead of a musicologist's point of view, which is, let me just take Hey Jude and look at it and yeah. dissect it and I can tell you how everything moves. Sure. I'm going to Paul and I'm saying, Paul, where were you when you wrote that? Was mm. it sunny? Where were you in your life? Did you have your kids yet? Yeah. You know, and I'm going down all these questions like you're doing with me. Yeah. And really bringing to life what's really behind the foundation of Hey Jude, of why Hey Jude even came to being. That's fascinating. Right? Yeah. So that's my degree, and that's where I approached with Rick. And my problem with Rick was is that he's just a massive guy with not a lot of time. Sure. And the people he's worked with yeah. are virtually untouchable in the aspect of what kind of access I needed. Ah. Uh, I needed daily access for a lot of these people. Yeah. And with Rick included. Yeah. I wasn't going to get that. Okay. I don't even know if... Wolf Blitzer could get that, right? <laughs> it's just it's just one of those things. You yeah. need that intense day-to-day -day thing. Sure. And you would need a lot of people to sign off on it. Yeah. So it wasn't possible. So my PhD advisor, Rob Bowman, uh, said, why don't you check out this Canadian guy, Daniel Lanois? Yeah. And at the time, I had never heard of him. Okay. Uh, that's not true. I had heard a little bit of him in New sure. Orleans, but yeah. not like to anything where I checked him out. Yeah. Um, so I checked out Dan and realized in about six months of research that most of his foundation lane was here in Canada mm. uh, around the Hamilton area. And I started reaching out and I had got 20, 30 interviews before I even made a decision to make this, make this my dissertation. Yeah. And off I went on Dan. <clears throat> a lot of the signs started mm. to point that way and a lot of interesting conundrums happened and oxymorons started to happen. Yeah. So I made Dan my thesis statement. Wow. Sound. Yeah. And I was starting to go down that path. And that was right around the time he finished up Neil Young's Lenoise, yeah. which was 09, 10. Okay. I, now, here's the funny thing is I couldn't get a hold of Dan for years. I had tried and tried and tried and so tried. So you're talking to everybody around Dan? Yeah. Okay. I'm talking to some of his most significant people around him. Wow. And I still can't get a get hold him. of him. Yeah. And uh I'm even I even talked to him after some shows. No problem, man. Talk to Margaret, my assistant. Yeah. We'll set you up a time. Yeah. Okay. So I eventually just give up on Dan. I'm like, I'm gonna write this thing without Dan. Fine. No big deal. Okay. So I'm in LA yeah. visiting some friends. Yeah. And at the time I have built a class at Conestoga College. Um around Dan and I got people taking the class and I'm throwing all these theories There's a out. Daniel Lanois class yes. that you've right all right and I'm teaching people his tricks yeah to my best of my knowledge obviously I'm not Dan. sure and one of my students in that class works worked at Blackberry who now is the head of audio at Microsoft okay pulled me aside one day and goes you're going to LA man you need to just go knock on his door yeah okay okay so I went, I'm in L.A. two weeks. Yeah. And my last day in L.A., I'm like, oh, fuck, I'll go knock on yeah. the door. So I write him in the letter, and I put it on his gate box. Yeah. And oh, I didn't tell you what's in the letter. Okay, back up a back little up, bit. Back up, yeah, a letter. You wrote a letter to him. But before the letter, <coughs> yeah. 
I'm, a, I'm not. So like you didn't a, knock on his door. You went to his door and gave a letter. It wasn't even a door. It was okay. A gate. It was a gate. <laughs> Put it on the gate box. He doesn't seem like a gate kind of guy, but okay. He's kind of really? a gate guy. Yeah? yeah. 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 Okay. All right. I mean, he's not like you walk I, into I, the bar. I, I'm, I'm like, I, I literally <laughs> would imagine him just walking down, grabbing a seat here, and ninety percent of the people would not know who the heck he was. Yes, he's that kind. Yeah. Of guy. But as far as his studios or his homes, he's okay. Fair he, enough. You know, he's, okay. he likes his privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, this, between the time I, st- I made the decision to do the dissertation on yeah. him and the time I put that note on his box, yeah. it was four years. Okay. Wow. So in 2012, yeah, he did a series of shows at the black box down on Queen and Dovercourt. Okay. Well, it turns out I live on Dovercourt and Queen. Yeah. So I'm deep into my research at this time. Yeah. Right. And at this time, I'm in this new band, Nights and Weekends. Okay. And I have developed this. Sorry, new... the name of the band is called Nights and Weekends. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I developed this new way of playing drums. Yeah. Which was, and this was all through my research on Dan. Yeah. Uh, my left foot is playing bass on a big keyboard. Yeah. A Moog Taurus, and the rest of me is playing drums. Okay. So I'm basically a rhythm section with one person. Yeah. Okay. I decide because Dan's gonna do this show. I'm going to set up shop on that street corner with this band. Yeah. Using all of his typical shit. Really? Like his sound? His sound. The yeah. whole deal. Uh, in a really unique deal, right? Yeah. yeah. So I said, fuck it. Let's just do it. Because yeah. I'm like, I can't I can't lose anything at no. this point, right? The guy's not calling me back. <laughs> so I do all this. And yeah. he pulls up in his Cadillac. And he walks out. And Jermaine, one of the singers, looks back at me. And he's like, that's got to be him. <laughs> So he walks over and he does his typical stand and does yeah. the thing and and he starts watching me do the bass and drums and he's yeah. pretty blown away. Yeah. And we start talking a little bit in between, you know, sets and yeah. sounds and stuff. And he walks in and do some sound checks and he tells Mark Howard and Brian Blade, who Brian Blade was another one of my great big admirers okay. of, of drumming because uh, he came up kind of the same ranks that I did before me with Johnny Vodakovich in New Orleans mm-hmm. with the same kind of sound. I'm nowhere near the drummer he is, but I've always enjoyed hearing that New Orleans sound out of, out of Blade. So Blade comes out, and Mark Howard comes out, and some other people come out, and they're like, cool, man, this guy this guy can lay it down with, some, with bass and drums. Yeah. And that stayed with Dan. Okay. And I kind of knew that stayed with Dan. That was my whole purpose of doing that. Yeah. I didn't mention the PhD. Didn't mention anything. I was just no. another dude on the street. Yeah. Playing, you know, playing, doing the shtick. Yeah. Right. So this letter, I left in him in L.A. Yeah. On his box, just simply said, "Hey, I'm the drummer who did bass and drums. Yeah. Doing dissertation on you. Love just five minutes of your time. Just yeah. talk. Get get a call later, uh, like an hour later. Okay. Right. Yeah. And. uh Come on over, man. Let's make this happen be before you leave. Okay. So I show up. Yeah. And he's a little busy fi- fi- fixing motorcycles, and he tells me to go up and start playing tunes with Kyle, Kyle Crane, the drummer. That's, okay. That's right now with him on tour. Yeah. Um, and so Kyle and I get along, and we're just playing and checking stuff out. Dan comes up about an hour later. Kyle and him start playing, and I'm videoing, and yeah, it just was like, wow, this is this is cool, man. And yeah. Most camps in LA I experienced, they wouldn't let you video or, or come in to play or yeah. or any of that. So I was really sensitive to how it was in LA yeah. and to how it was in Dan's camp. Yeah. And Dan doesn't operate like most other people. Okay. It's different. Meaning? So how would you define how most other people operate 
and then contrasting that with how Daniel. Um, I would say Dan is unorthodox, and most other people are traditional. Okay. I think most other people... Daniel flows. He flows to a certain degree. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of control for him within or after the flow. Okay. There's definitely flow there. Yeah. But, he, I mean, part of what makes him brilliant is that he can... What's a, what's a good way of saying this? He can shine a piece of turd better than anybody else, right? Okay. Better than anybody else <laughs> I've right, seen. All right, all right. And not to say that anything he's done is shit. Yeah. But, you know, if it's already great, recorded on on tape, yeah, it's going to be phenomenal afterwards. Huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it was all his years of just having to hustle and hustle and hustle. Yeah. And then buying a house in Hamilton and hustling more and making people sound... Because as a music producer and a studio engineer and an owner, yeah, I have personal experience with this. Before even Dan, your job is to make people sound better than what they are. That's huh. it. You know, somebody okay. comes in, lays down ten grand cash. I want a record. Yeah, make me sound great, man. Because I'm. That's cause, really what it is. Because they got their dreams, right? Yeah. And you are a facilitator of those dreams. Wow. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Dan's got the same responsibility, just a whole lot more zeros involved. Sure. Right? Yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, you know, his setup is like a home studio setup like this. Yeah. If you see how we're communicating, yeah. this is how he would have his, you know, Bob Dylan right here. Bob and him. Put, put a wedge right here. Yeah. Pipe it through. Let's play, Bob. And they would record it. Huh. Right? And yeah. then shift through it, find the good stuff, build upon it, not build upon it. Maybe it's a good idea for a different song. Yeah. You know, just that's the flow of it. Yeah. You capture the magic as you're going. It's always being recorded, no matter what it is, for Dan. And that just doesn't happen in traditional studios. In traditional mm-hmm. studios, there's no instruments set up yet. You know, they got to charge for that. You know, it's oh. about you're thinking about the money. Yeah. Right? You know, at the end of the day, you got to break everything back down. You know, yeah. For Dan, it's all set up all the time. The sounds are there, mics yeah. are on. Your levels are good. Yeah. You don't have to think about it. You walk in, Neil Young walks in, says, Well, that's great at guitar, picks it up, strums it, it's yeah. already recording. It's already Yeah. It's already leveled. Everything's good to go. Yeah. And that's part of what makes Dan's studios so uh, so phenomenal. Yeah. So how do you so when you're speaking to him in LA, are you looking to not even speaking to him because you're 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 playing with his drummer, uh, then he comes in and, and he starts playing and you're watching. What sort of information are you looking? Are you looking to ask him certain questions? Are you looking to find out certain things to help with your dissertation? What is it that you're, or are you, or do you have enough experience that from your observations you can make conclusions? Well, like you, I've yeah. been involved with hundreds, maybe even thousands of these. Yeah. And okay. in different languages yeah. on both sides of the mics. Yeah. So I knew going into the deal. I had one, maybe two questions. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I had a better shot at establishing a relationship with him with a greater purpose than to go in and go, I got to get all my major questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, help me. Just fix this. You know what I'm... Yeah. So I didn't go in there with that. I walked in okay. there and I said, Dan, look, I'm doing this. Yeah. This has been a life journey. This is probably going to take 10 years to finish. Yeah. Um, you can choose to be a part of it or not. Yeah. This is why I'm doing it. Yeah. This is your ROI in business terms, yeah. right? Your, your return on investment here yeah. is that we get to help a future generation 
of audio recordists or yeah. musicians in Canada. Yeah. And you can choose to try to help me on that or yeah. not. And Dan was, was very inspired by that. Yeah. And my two main questions with him yeah. were, how do I separate you, your sound, from yeah. Brian Eno? That was the main question I needed huh. to get out. Because that's, that's Dan's conundrum in the eyes of other people. In the eyes they of... They worked together on you two? Well, if you don't know the history of Dan... The deal is with Dan is that before 1978-ish, 9-ish, yeah. um, Dan was a independent studio owner, an independent music producer okay. uh, on his own right in Canada. Had yeah. already done a few hits, had worked with Rafi, yeah. had worked with Martha and the Muffins, yeah. um, was beginning to work with uh, Parachute Club and some other people. Okay. So he was starting to come up on his own. Yeah. So he had a sound and he had a thing. And at that time, Toronto was full of marketing companies that were doing jingles all day long. Oh, okay. There was no instruments set up, stale, yeah. excuse me, stale environments. Mm -hmm. And people wanted a vibey place. Yeah. They wanted a place where there was instruments set up. You walk in, bang out a few tunes, yeah. and print a record, and off you go. Huh. So Dan supplied that in Hamilton, where there was a scene. Okay. Toronto was a little... Interesting. All right. It wasn't really a scene. Yeah. Still, actually, Toronto's kind of still the same way today. It's a little stiff, a little oh. urban, a little um, premeditated or overproduced. Sure, sure, sure. You know, when you listen to a Drake, so Drake song, it, you know, it's... Yeah. I, I, God bless Drake, man. He's yeah. doing great. He's doing great work. I'm just saying, like, I understand you're, what you're, saying. Yeah. you're either into that over, overproduced kind of urban thing yeah. or you're not. Right? Yeah. And so Dan came from the school of like Jimi Hendrix, man. You okay. turn on the microphones and you wail yeah. and you either have the magic or you don't. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, those studios, this the studio he built on Grant Avenue with his brother in, in 75, uh, attracted the likes of Brian Eno through a group called the Time Twins. Okay. Um, they went down there and kind of pitched their music to Brian, and Brian thought they were cute, and they got to know each other, and they came back to here and wanted to do more work. Brian needed a break from New York. Yeah. Flew to Toronto, stayed with them, oh. and while he was staying with them, the Time Twins, he wanted to do some recording. Yeah. Um, I don't know anybody who travels with their two-inch tapes, but he seemed to do it. Sure. It's kind of funny, right? Yeah. I mean, those things are heavy and big. So, you know, they called Dan and sent him an appointment, and Brian shows up, and uh, they, off they go. It's 19, late 79. Okay. And from that point until U2, Unforgettable Fire, yeah, they had knocked out. It's different recollections, even for Dan. Yeah. I've looked up 18 different bodies of work in that four or five year period but i think for dan it's like eight to ten somewhere in there okay so it, you know depending on what was released and when and oh. if it even got released yeah, yeah, and yeah. who they work with and who got producer credits and all that um but there was a series of body of work in there that dan and brian developed an intimate relationship on and developed a whole new code of ethics if you will huh. when producing music yeah and it started with Brian experimenting with uh, what he calls ambient music. Yes. I don't know if you know the story of that. No. Would you like to hear that? Sure. So the story of ambient music, basically, in a nutshell, is that Brian got into an accident and was laid up in a hospital for a while. It was a pretty serious accident. Yeah. Uh, automobile or motorcycle accident. I forget which one. But he had a record player there. And I think his wife or a friend of his came in and put the needle on the record. And he couldn't get out of bed. Brian couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. And um, they said goodbye to Brian. And 
uh, like visiting hours were over or something. And oh, okay, they, yeah, and they yeah. left the hospital, yeah, yeah. and Brian was stuck listening to this record, and it was just a little too soft. He wanted a little bit louder. Yeah. And it was raining out that night. So yeah. it was the combination of the ambient from the outside yeah. and just wanting to listen in to that music uh. but couldn't get to, get it to turn it up. Okay. And it was the combination of everything yeah. that he decided that he wanted to make this type of music, like a purposeful oh. vision of this music, right? Yeah. So he went on this mission to develop this style or genre yeah. of music, and it ended up with Dan... And Dan brought the other piece to the puzzle to help flush that out. Okay. Brian had done an album or two before Dan. Yeah. But when you listen to those records compared to what happened with Dan and after, yeah, it's a totally different kind of thing. So tell me, like, to an untrained ear like mine, mm -hmm. what, what's Dan? What's Daniel's sound? Uh, in you want to use vocabulary? Because when I when I listen to Lenoise, mm -hmm. um, there's there's that there is some of that. I don't know if you would call it ambient sound, but it, like there's a lot of that feedback stuff mm -hmm. that I don't know if he added post. Like he captured those sounds during and then just added it post. You're thinking too technical. You got to think I'm sorry, feeling okay. wise. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you, psychedelic. It's not not really a word used much today because everything's so crystal clear and hyper focused. Yeah. yeah. On fame and and getting your point out. Uh huh. Um. You gotta remember that Dan's a Hendrix guy. Hendrix okay. was it for him, right? So that whole lose yourself yeah. psychedelic thing. Now couple that with, you know, Canada's tundra. You ever driven across North Ontario when it's snowing? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So think about psychedelic Hendrix mixed with that Canada tundra, with New Orleans grooves. That's pretty much Dan. All right. Right. Okay. With you know songwriting that it has to do with openness, like the Canada Plains. It's very um, you know how Blue Rodeo is. It's kind of like watered down milk. Blue Rodeo is watered down milk. Or not just Blue Rodeo, but like Tragically Hip, or um, compared to the American or the world stage. Okay. For Canada, yeah. it's a different experience when you hear those things. Okay. But if you play Blue Rodeo in you know, Austin, Texas, or yeah. in London, UK, yeah. or even in Taipei, Taiwan. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're not going to connect to it like Canadians. So Fair. it's a very Canadian thing. Okay. So from the outsider point of view, like when I first came to America and started to really look at Dan, I'm like, yeah. it's Canadian music. Just, I don't jive with it. It's, okay. it's kind of blah. Okay. Uh, like even when the whole Gord thing went down, like yeah. God, God bless him, but yeah. I, I didn't get him. Okay. You know, I, I just, I don't get it. Okay. And I don't know if it's because I wasn't raised here. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. I don't connect with it. It's nothing personal. No, no. It's just, uh, it, it's a thing. Yeah. And I really think it's a strongly Canadian thing. And I think you have to be raised with it. Huh. And Dan has that. Whatever that thing is. Yeah. I can't quite define it. I spent a long time trying to define it. We have a course. You didn't, there was no definition. There was no that. definition, right? <laughs> But, you know, if you wanted to go into typical vocabulary about Dan, yeah. it's melancholic, it's open, okay, atmospheric is a atmospheric, big, is I think a big word, word they use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't think he would like that word very much. You know, okay. Words like pads or... Okay. Yeah. You you hear the Brian Eno, Daniel Lanois sound in yeah. almost every movie you see today. Ah, uh, okay. You do. Yes, the background... Background shimmers. Yes. You know, the background, you know... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's the one note 
you know, two minute hold of one note and make it thick, 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 thick with like, you know, harmony after harmony after harmony and, huh. and, and harmonizers on it. Uh, you know, some would say it's a big technical sound. Sure. But it's, uh, you know, the sound's meant to put you in a, in a space. I don't know anybody who's a Daniel Landwall fan who doesn't talk to me intimately about this. Yeah. It doesn't say, you know, when I listen to Dan, it puts me in a space. Yeah. And I really love that space. Yeah. And that's what Dan does. Yeah. Whatever he does. Huh. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting because I first heard of him as a producer for U2. Mm. That's right. The name for me. Uh, and then I was a huge, I don't know if you remember this TV show, Northern Exposure. Mm. Um, loved the TV show. And so obviously when they had a Columbia Music House, remember that service? You get like 10 CDs for a dollar and then every no, month you buy. Anyway, so I, I got the Northern Exposure uh, CD and mm. they had a Daniel Lanois song on it. And it was, uh, I think it's called My Jolie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you listen to that and it's very folksy. Like it's a folk song to me. Um, and I listen to that and, and I can't put the two together do you see a relationship well i see it from a different point of view okay dan is like a sponge with the people he works with Ah, okay okay okay. most producers are okay you know just like after tonight yeah whoever you've interviewed today you're probably going to go home and think about a few things we've all said yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and then probably show up in an interview tomorrow you do yeah right yeah so with dan at that time in his life Akadi was released in 89. You know, he just spent a lot of work, a lot of hard work on uh-huh. Bob Dylan. Okay. And what's Dylan known for? Yeah. Folky, yeah. rootsy, oh, I see to the saying. point. Yeah, yeah. Political. Yeah. Stuff that means something to true. him. Right? You true, know, Dan true, wrote true. The Maker. Um, huh. You know, it's spiritual it, meanings that were very deep and, and yeah. passionate to Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't necessarily about his sound at that okay. time. It was more about him as a songwriter because that's okay. what he was being influenced by. Yeah, yeah. Up until that point, you got to understand that before U2, yeah. Dan had only worked with m- predominantly Canadian bands, but heavily yeah. influenced by American bands. People sure. like Rick James out of Buffalo like really floored him when he came yeah. up to record once. Bands out of uh, Detroit through Motown. Yeah. And the scene that was happening there in the 60s and 70s. That yeah. was a huge influence for Dan. So he had this really rhythmic thing going on, but had a Canadian feel of it. Yeah. Right? So up until the point he worked with U2, it was, it was his whole life had been about making people sound better. And I'm not yeah. saying that changed afterwards. Sure, 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 sure. But all of a sudden he's put in a position where people already sound great. Yeah. And now he has to make those people sound better. Yeah. Right? So... He uses, you know, he kits you two first, then uses, uh, not uses, but uh, goes to um, Robbie Robertson next, then Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, who else comes after that? Then you two again, the Joshua Tree. Yeah. And then he moves to New Orleans and does uh, the Neville Brothers, another great songwriter and yeah. singing. Talk about range, Aaron Neville. Whew. Uh, he yes. might be one of the best, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, he does, he does he does that. He does Bob Dylan, and then, then he does his own record. Yeah, right. Or finishes his own record because yeah. he's kind of been doing it along the whole way. Yeah. So here's this period of time in his life where he's done about ten records. Yeah. Or eight records in a period of eight years, six or eight years. Yeah. And he just murders it on, right? So now it's time for him to express himself because oh. he's been 
a musician this whole time. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Trying to play, yeah. making a living. He's doing like the up north the Timmins tour. <laughs> you know what I mean? So all of a sudden he gets he gets this hit and he's been on the road ever since. And now he gets time to get back after what he loves doing, which is playing and writing. Yeah. So everybody says they have one record in them. And okay. his his one record, I, I mean he's got ten under his belt. Yeah. But you know, Akadi's been has been the the, the tried and true record for him. The That's first, his first record. Right? Yeah. Wow, we could talk for hours. I don't have the space for hours, but I want to ask you a couple more things. Yeah. Um, you're presently teaching. Yes. Where do you teach? What do you what do you what are you teaching? I teach anything that has to do with sound. Okay. I morphed from being a music teacher to okay. you know, my experience in LA also led to being behind the scenes on films, yeah, running sound and okay, doing all kinds of stuff. Okay. I was pretty much a whore in LA. I did anything okay. anybody needed me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was my training in sound. Sure, sure, sure. So that turned into teaching gigs, yeah, and writing production. You're classes. at Sheridan. Sheridan. Yeah. What do you? So what's the? What are you teaching the kids? Uh, at Sheridan is sound design. Yeah. Uh, sound in in movies. Okay. Uh, for uh, for all media. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um. And you're also at an agency. Yes. Uh, and your title is, oh, man. God, wait. you know what? I almost want to save that for a totally separate, because that's a whole other show. Every time I go and Google the company and stuff, I always misspell it, and I say, so that's not the name of it. But who are you working What's the name of the agency that you're with right now? Ethno Dialogue. Ethno Dialogue. Um, and you are the VP of? I am. I hate something. job titles. I know. Right? But just the, <laughs> the job title. I mean, the main the main job title. But you're, I, have, I guess your your role there. Let's talk about that. Your role. My role yeah. there is I'm a partner. I'm there for growth, and okay. I'm there to look at UX and strategize behind UX on a global level. Yeah. Now they're a multicultural marketing agency. I yes. guess that's the the title of that. Yes. But you you alluded to the name of the company when you were talking about um, your dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, where you're not, you know, you gave the example of Paul McCartney mm-hmm. and Hey Jude, you just, you don't want to ask, okay, let's, let's dissect that song, but you want to know how that song was created, where Paul was, uh, you sure life. you want to go here now? It's going to be another hour. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> see. That's why I'm, I'm looking around. Cause usually there's people that come in yeah. around this time. Um, so as a, so, so tell me about the, the agency and what you bring to it based upon like this huge uh, five lives that you've led um, to this stage. Well, first off, every second of every experience I've had yeah. in my life yeah. has brought me to this place to help this company grow. And yeah, become, I can see that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so when I walk into a board meeting yeah. at Ford uh, or whoever we're working with, because we work with a lot of major corporations that are out of Canada or out of the States. Yeah. Um, it, it comes down to we fill market share, bottom line. Yeah. And we do that by looking at the actual customers. Yeah. And where are they? What percent are they of the of the of the world mm-hmm. or of the place you're trying to hit? Say you're trying to hit the GTA. Yeah. So what's the GTA breakdown? You know, mainstream Anglophone English speaking people is thirty five percent of the city. The rest is sixty five percent, and it's all culture. Yeah. So when we go into somewhere like Canadian Tire and we're like, all of your marketing campaigns, everything you're doing is looking at 35%, not at the full picture. 
Yeah. So we call it total marketing or total market advertising. Okay. Right. So where where we do very very well is we're retail experts mm-hmm. and we use ethnographic research, the stuff okay. that I'm really good at. Yeah. At being able to define. Yeah. Who is where? How are they interacting with digital? Is it traditional? Um, blah blah blah. Yeah. And we go in and do it. Okay. And we go in there and talk to them for these companies. Yeah. Um, and so when, when you are doing your research, when you're Mm -hmm. getting dirty, um, what do you, what do you look at? You know, I don't know if you want to use Canadian Tire as an example, but what do you look at and what do you present? Well, let's take the Junos. Like right now, I'm I'm talking to the Junos on behalf of Dan and on behalf of Ethno Dialogue. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the Junos, they got English and French down pretty good. Canada as a whole is 43% culture. 35% 35%-ish white uh, yeah. and English, yeah. and 22% French. Yeah. They got English and French wrapped up pretty good. Yeah. What are you doing about the 43? Yeah. What are you doing about the Chinese sure. and the South Asians and everybody else? Yeah. Right? I, I don't know. <laughs> right? Okay. Their answer is nothing. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I go, well, who do we need to bring into this meeting yeah. and talk about how to move forward? Yeah. How do you want to... Be ten years from now because those numbers, the twenty-two percent and thirty-five percent of old traditional Canada, yeah, they're only getting lower, yeah, and quickly. So within ten years, it's going to be twenty-five percent traditional and probably even less than that with French. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we push forward with conversations. I mean, basically, what we do is strategize, a very intellectual strategy. Yeah. And somebody like the Junos, for instance, they have uh, side companies, if you will. Okay. Like, um, is it Music Counts? It's either Music Cares or no, it's, it's Music Counts. Yeah, yeah. So what they do is they go to community centers throughout Canada and they give musical instruments. Yes, they, they yes. They try to build little scenes among small, lovely heard, yeah. individuals, right? Well, they're not exactly talking to them in language. Or, you know, mm. how do they do that? Yeah. You know, and that's where a company like what I do comes into play. Yeah. So me being... Uh, an ethnomusicologist. Yes. And how I've dove into Dan so deeply yeah. over a long period of time. Yeah. Has directly graduated me to the point where I can look at a society and break them down. Because really, what it came down to with Dan, with his sound, with yeah. me. Yeah. And Daniel Lanois. Daniel Lanois, yeah. sorry. Um, it came back to even before he was born. Okay. Right. It got like I started to look at him as a four-year-old and as an huh. eight-year-old and a ten-year-old, and what influenced him there. Mm. Because, for instance, with Dan, he uses compressors that have big knobs. Okay. Right. And I couldn't figure that out. Simple. Yeah. Now, a lot of other producers get all these really technical little things that. And you, know, you saw that at there's you saw that you actually noticed the big knobs. Big knobs. Okay. Same on his uh, on his mixing consoles. Okay. You know, he likes big things. Yeah. I'm like, why the hell does he do that? Yeah. And I looked into it. Yeah. And then finally, oh, fuck, he's got huge hands. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. So something as simple <laughs> as having huge hands yeah. affects you unconsciously yeah. of how you're going to interact with a device. Okay. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I pull out my phone and I'm looking at it and I'm interacting with it. Yeah. I got to think about the culture. Do they traditionally have big hands? Oh. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it all interplays. Yeah. 
Okay, so let me ask you. So now I want to get under the hood there a mm-hmm. little, a little bit. Um, how or or what have you noticed? Um, you know, wh- whether we want to talk about Southeast Asians or whatever ethnic group we want to, but are are there certain things that you have figured out or found out about certain ethnicities that companies should know and notice and then adjust? And I don't know if you want to. I don't know if you can you say this or are we giving away secret sauce here? Of a, well, we have a black box, right? Okay, I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to give you too much of the black fair, box, fair, right? Fair, fair, yeah, yeah. So you know, we've sat down with companies overseas, yeah, and been in front of very serious people, and yeah. they look at us and they go, "You're fucking racist," right? Because oh, I can see because okay, we know these things, yeah, yeah. And their whole thing, yeah, is you know they they look at us like we're we're demons, yeah, like we're, we're the enemy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the bottom line is, is we're just trying to bring to you. Here's opportunity to yeah. talk to people in your country. Yeah. That are here, and this okay. is within one to five years. All right. Right. Yeah. And some people don't do well with that. They yeah. they look at that as stereotyping and whatever it is. But we have we've had scientists with us. We've had you know we we used six different data collection agencies. Yeah. And people who. We have 46,000 panelists through one company we use. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're pretty solid on these, these, what what do we call them? Um, Stereotypes. Yeah. Right? Okay, so let me me ask you this. Um, That Pepsi commercial, Mm -hmm. you know, that Pepsi commercial, the one with one of the Jenner sisters. I don't know if I've seen that. It was... This is the one where there is a protest in the streets and she comes out with a can of Pepsi and gives it to one of the police officers and now all of a sudden things are things are better. Um, and it was, they, they took, and apparently Pepsi made this in-house. They didn't use an agency. But they took um, what was happening with... Uh, I think I read about it. Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was, oh, Pepsi's the solution to all of life's woes. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, that went wrong. Or Did it? It went... Well, oh, okay. Okay, tell me. <laughs> it, I don't know. It, it's, you know. Everyone everyone shat on it. Um, well, let me ask you. I mean... Yeah. You're, you're I don't the, drink more Pepsi the, as a result. You're in the... It's not about that. Okay. It's about brand awareness. So is there if such they, thing If they want to move actual product, they're yeah. hitting people in stores immediately on your phone. Fair, fair. You okay. know... A yeah. case of Pepsi right now yeah. for a dollar seven off, cents, right? Or yeah. whatever it is, yeah. right? That's how they move product. Okay. Those kind of commercials, that's about yeah. brand awareness, right? Okay. So is there such thing as negative brand awareness? Of course. Okay. But have you ever seen negative brand awareness really kill anybody? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's there was that was it? I mean, look at Trump. He's fucking brilliant at it. Jeez. <laughs> Right? The more negative the people fucking people dial it in. Man. Yeah. That doesn't matter if you like him or not. So with this Pepsi commercial, okay. I would say from a yeah. marketing point of view, yeah. you know, it was probably a bunch of white people. Okay. Like like myself. Fair, fair. Right? Yeah. Who've taken the white point of view, who wants yeah. to connect with the indigenous, whatever it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To connect with your liberals. Yeah. And to connect with your 30 and under crowd, your, yeah. your millennials yeah, yeah, yeah. who are amongst that, who feel yeah. like they have a voice right now in that area. Yeah. And it backfired. Yeah. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe, maybe. that's the whole point. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe they set this up to backfire and then it's a talking point and you get everybody out on the street talking about it who you want to get talking about. 
because we're sitting here talking about it today yeah. because it backfired. If yeah. it didn't backfire, it'd be just another forgettable commercial. Huh. Um, are agencies and marketers and brands paying too much attention to millennials? They're not like, the largest group. They're not the wealthiest group. But every, almost every client I'm talking to, what are we doing with millennials? Well, it's a certain, see, I have this talk a lot, even with other agencies. Yeah. So great, man. You're hip. You got the nice creative going on. You yeah. look glit and glamish. You know, yeah. you got the nice desks in your agency, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. It's costing you a fortune. Yeah. How much are you profiting off all this creative, mm-hmm. right? You're paying art directors out the wazoo. Yeah. And all you're going after yeah. is white. And they think they're going after diversity because they put the typical... South Asian yeah. in the commercial. Oh, they do. Which doesn't connect with South Asian because it's, no. it's a white perspective, right? Yeah. So, I'm trying to put this as politically correct as I can, right? Yeah. Um, or not. Or not. Yeah. I'll, I'll do the best that I can. Yeah. So, basically, you know, if you can't connect with the people yeah. that you're going after without their lens... Or their perspective, or what it's like to arrive in a foreign land and have X amount of you know dollars in your pocket, and no, you got to get a bank account first. Yeah, you need a car. Yeah, you want your, your kid to go to education because that's why you're here. You want sure. a better life for your next generation. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, you need a house. Yeah, and you need some furniture. Yeah, and you need some clothes. You know, you go down the list. Yeah, right. If you're not talking to them like that. Yeah, in basic terms, in their language. Yeah. I don't care who you're talking to. It's not going to work on a mass scale. You won't you won't go from number 5 to number 1 mm-hmm. as far as multicultural yeah. uh, concepts are are concerned. Yeah. Right? Like we took Ford from number 4 to number 1. Yeah. Because of that. We yeah. made cultures feel at home with Ford. Yeah. Um over a 3-year period. It's just, this isn't like an overnight deal. No, right? it's, not, it's not just one commercial spot. And when it comes to multiculturalism and millennials, yeah. I think where a lot of these agencies and these businesses are failing is they think, A, social media is going to fix everything. And second, they think that millennials are all white and English speaking. Yeah. Well, right now, the millennials are the most multicultural generation ever. Yeah. Ever. And they're not treating it as such. They're actually treating it more like on the other side, yeah. like it's the baby boomer generation mm. and presenting them with all like, here's your juices and here's your high-end beers and here's yeah. your high-end coffees and all this, you know, it's, it's all the glitter, I call it. Yeah. That doesn't connect with cult. Like any, any ads we run for culture, it has yeah. nothing to do with Clinton and Clan. It's basic to the bones. Yeah. Here's your deal. Here's where you go get it. And here's where you got to get it by. It's, yeah. it's about selling a head of lettuce by Friday. Else it's going to go bad. Yeah. Right? And with each generation within that culture, it's a different tactic. Digital is only good for a certain age bracket. SEM, SEO searches for yeah. Google yeah. with actual written word, that's only good for a certain generation. Yeah. Right? And then if you get a little older, you got to go print TV or radio. Because the older people... That's what they're doing. That's what they do. Yeah, they're not yeah. going to change. Yeah. Like, I was just in a movie a couple days ago. Yeah. And some old couple was behind me, and I was like, you know, they're all about put them in front of me. And they're yeah. like, 
they kind of snuck up on me and went, what's going on with all these computers? I don't know how to use <laughs> these. And I said, there's a person right there to help you. If they can't help you, I'd be happy to help yeah. you. Right? So the, the older generation doesn't get digital. Yeah. I'm sure some do. I mean, sure, it's not, sure, not sure. the whole thing. But yeah. you got to serve them paper ads. You yeah. got to serve them things that are tangible that uh-huh. they can get. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and in a lot of these cultures, like Chinese, for example, you know, the oldest person in the family kind of makes the decisions. Okay. And it's still kind of a male-driven deal, whether yeah. we like it or not, right? Yeah. We're not, we didn't write the rules. We're just no. ob- abiding by them. Yeah. So you have to go by the chain of commands in the family. Yeah. Right? So you kind of have, if I want to sell somebody on going to school to Humber College, yeah, I got to work on that grandparent and or parent. Yeah. And probably going to be dad or grandpa. Yeah. And it's probably going to be through some local paper that only speaks Mandarin in that one local paper, yeah. in that one local area. You know what I mean? Interesting, yeah. So most of these companies we work for, they're not even close to thinking like that. Why aren't they? I don't, you know, one is they're just not aware of the reality of of what Canada has become. It's it's not becoming, it's what it's become. Yeah. In the next three to four years, maybe five years, it's going to be over 50% culture in this country. The Canada that they grew up with yeah, is not the canon of what it, what it is today. Yeah, so those days are over, and they either miss that message or miss that boat, or everything has been working so good so far. Yeah, that all of a sudden they're starting to kind of wake up, going, "Well, we've been losing like a point, point and a half of market yeah. share for the last five years. What's going on?" And we're pumping more money into marketing. What's going on? Yeah, or I hate to say it, some companies are like, "I just don't want my brand to be associated with." X. Yeah. You know what I mean? That ethnicity or, or whatever it is. Or the vibe of it or the look yeah. of it, you know. It all comes with a with a thing, right? Yeah. And they must then understand that by not embracing that there's market share then they're very unlikely to capture. Well, our talk with them is like if yeah. you don't get first in now, yeah. And you're tenth in five, ten years from now, yeah. You're dead. It's yeah. over. Yeah. It's going to take you millions and millions of dollars to overcome and battle everybody out for that yeah. real estate. Was there an aha moment um, with Ethno Dialogue where it was, I guess before it was even called that, was there an aha moment where you guys knew and you understood, here's a position that everyone else is not looking at. They're not looking at the different Canada today than it was 10, 20 years ago? It's an aha moment for me? Yeah. You got to remember, I was raised in the States. So, and in Texas, when my family and I first arrived in Texas, see, this this company started there, basically. And it started there with a company called Fiesta Grocery Stores. And they were a grocery store company that was so far ahead of its time, 20 years ahead of its time. They were doing like in-store um, hydroponic growing of lettuce and stuff like that. Yeah. And they had the know-abouts and the upstairs thinking to cater to the Mexican and Latin population in Texas, which at the time yeah. was like 30% of the population. Now, when I left the States, Texas is at 65%. Wow. So thinking about it, and out of L.A., you know, I think culture in L.A. last time I looked was like 51%, yeah. and that's including Latin. Um, so for me to think that way when I came to Canada was normal, 
Okay. But I don't think sure. Canadians coming up in Canada yeah. were thinking that way when I when I first arrived. Because yeah. we're, we're, we're in it. We're in that You're mix. We're in, in that it. soup. And if you live outside of Toronto or, like, say you live in Forest Hill yeah. or you live in the west side of Toronto. Yeah. You're not really engaging with a lot of culture. Mm. You might think you are. Yeah. And I talk to a lot of stores that are like, well, yeah, we set this up for culture and we try to open it up, but it's like it's all from white point of view with white ideas of what culture is. It's yeah. not with in-depth research and yeah. the realities of those cultures yeah. from their point of view, right? Yeah. Um, they never really arrive at a place where they can actually go, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Like drive to Markham. Or drive somewhere like Dundas and um, sure. Um, what's that street called? Dovercourt. Uh, no, it's that's uh, Huron, Ontario. Huron, Ontario. Huron, yeah, Ontario, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Dundas. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty eye-opening. Sure. Even for me, living in New York and LA, I was yeah. like, oh man, this is uh, really. It's got a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Normally, like in America, it's more segregated. You know, everybody stays in their wings. Occasionally, you might get like Cuban Chinese, <laughs> sure, right? Or you might get like Puerto Rican, uh, 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 you know, hamburgers or something. Yeah. right? you know what I mean. But there, like, you get South Asian in language. You yeah. get you get Muslim from like Saudi, yeah, or Iran yeah. in language, yeah. And then you have like traditional Chinese Mandarin in mm. language, mm. all right next to each other. Yeah. Right. No English. It's all their language. Yeah. Right next to each other. That's right. Right. Yeah. You, that's that's a rare thing. Huh. A lot of companies come to this city. Yeah. To Toronto. Yeah. To run tests because if it works here. Yeah. It'll work anywhere else in the world. Really. Huh. Correct. That's awesome. more so than New York. More so than Los Angeles. Yeah. San Francisco and Seattle actually are starting to become a lot like Toronto. Yeah. They're almost there. Interesting. David, thanks so much for your time, man. Yeah, man. This has been good. I'd love to do it again. Yeah. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Smile.